Welcome to the Daniel Orman Show. It is yours truly coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call and all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in on this Thursday, April the 25th. We are really excited to have joining us in just a few minutes, Sky Eddie Bruce, to talk all different types of subjects, and especially soccer parents. Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun conversation, and uh, we we will jump into that in just a little bit. So I uh, don't know if you paid attention yesterday, but the the biggest club match in the world at this point happened yesterday why was it the biggest club match in the world it was the biggest club match in the world because it probably ended up deciding the premier league title and that was the manchester derby between manchester united and manchester city although i am i am a massive fan of pep guardiola and i believe he is the greatest manager the greatest coach in the history of coaching I was rooting against him yesterday, hoping for the the nasty Red Devils uh, to to pull out at least a draw, uh, so that the Premier League team that I support, uh, Liverpool, would have the ability to control their own destiny to win the Premier League for the first time in decades, and unfortunately, Manchester United. Um, well, let's just say they didn't do their job. Um, and specifically, uh, David De Gea, um, yeah, not a good day for him. Um, so as I was watching the the match and, you know, had the misfortune of having to root for Manchester United to at least get a result, um, I was reminded of a principle that... I use often when I'm talking to people about organizations, organizational drift, business, etc. And in this case, looking at how two soccer teams approached the game, how they were playing in that match. Um, and, and in doing that, um, it, this principle really to me stood out. And the principle is this, that you, you get what you are structured to be. You are what you are structured to do, meaning that if you set out to be a team that can control a match, 
that you've got to train your players both individually and as the collective to be able to execute that. So oftentimes you will hear in youth development that we are a possession-based team or we are a positional play-based team. And in either case, when you watch the team play, whenever stress is involved, meaning that there's pressing, there is turnovers, there's bad touches, etc. What does the team do in that moment? That tells you more about whether a team is is able to play possession-based soccer or positional play-based soccer rather than the the words from a coach or from a club. And if you watched the match yesterday between Manchester United and Liverpool, uh, excuse me, Manchester United and, and Manchester City, you saw two sides of the spectrum when it came to being able to control the match. Manchester United were at home and they were getting run through, run around, couldn't get the ball. If they got the ball, there were panics panic plays down the side just just hoping somebody could get on the end of it you could tell that Manchester United were were in no place no position where they prepared to control that match they were not able to to take the 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 ball take the match and caused Manchester City a lot of problems. Now, they had a few chances, and, you know, quite frankly, uh, if if David De Gea uh, doesn't let in two howlers in terms of, to his standards, those are two saves that he makes, you know, eight, nine times out of ten, near post saves um if he makes those two saves you know we're, we're looking at this and and we see the result nil nil and 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 it might be easy to gloss over the fact that manchester united were were at a level below manchester city in terms of their ability to control the match and and that was the opposite with manchester city man city was brilliant as they normally are um Pep Guardiola has taken a player in in Raheem Sterling and has worked wonders with him in terms of his development, getting him to I, I think I think he probably in the past was thinking too much too fast and, and has has allowed him to kind of breathe and slow down. Um admittedly yesterday he was he was playing really, really well. Um, and and has been for much of this season. And in the past, I've been a, a Raheem Sterling critic. I, I was not a fan of his when uh, Liverpool sold him to Man City. Um, I thought that, uh, you know, Man City way overpaid for him, and he's he's putting his work in, and he's, he's definitely, um, you know, showing that, uh, he is able to to elevate his game and, and and really in the area of consistency and on an individual stand uh, from an individual standpoint, you can tell that that Raheem Sterling is who he is structured to be. He is training. He is working off the field to 
to make the player that he is on the field come to life. And you see that individually in the work that Pep and his staff are doing with Raheem and Raheem's doing on himself. And you're seeing that as a collective with Man City in the way that they play. Um, the announcers yesterday, matter of fact, they they were talking about when, uh, when Fernandinho had to leave the game uh, due to a little bit of a knock. I don't think he wanted to come out, but Pep was like, look, I'm, I'm going to change some things up. And I think, I think Pep was just looking for any opportunity to, to, to change some of the rhythm of the game. And so he, he dropped Gundogan down into the six and, and pulled Fernandinho off and brought in uh, Leroy uh, Sané. And, and then after that, it was, it was, pretty much lights out. I mean, Ma- Manchester United couldn't contain uh, Sané on the left and, and Sterling on the right. And um, and then it was all she wrote. And I think it's all she wrote for for Liverpool. Um, unfortunately, there's three matches left and there's still a lot to be played for. And, and we can only hope that uh, Burnley and and Leicester and, and uh, I believe Brighton uh, can give Man City some some issues and hopefully get a draw somewhere, but it's not likely. It looks like Man City wrapped the title up yesterday, and and uh, it's unfortunate um, for Liverpool. They've had a a really 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 good season, and um, you know when they when they got their lead, um, they had a little stretch where um, I think they got a little tired and started dropping some points and and then all of a sudden man city was right back there in the hunt and and i don't think liverpool was ever able to to get that space again they were never able to separate themselves from man city enough and um and 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 that allowed uh man city to catch them and ultimately i think this this one point um may be the the end of the season uh uh, total for the difference between liverpool and man city in in man city winning and retaining the title so uh as a as a supporter of liverpool the premier league i was certainly hoping for a different result yesterday but uh you know you could tell that david de gea um would rather man city win than liverpool i'm kidding i i I just think he he messed up a couple times so but that principle, we see that principle. You are who you're structured to be. It's real easy to talk a big game. It's real easy to say that we, you know we're going to bring it to Man City or we're going to do this. Or we're gonna... This is Manchester United who who is being found out. They're being exposed in terms of quality um, and in in terms of, in my opinion, it's not just individuals. I think it's the collective as well. I, you look at them play and and they they behave in terms of the way they play as if they are a mid-table team against teams that are of great quality and so you you watch the way that they go about their play and um and there's just almost a lack of belief in what they're doing um there's this uh this lack of uh, of aggression in terms of um possessing the ball and and controlling the game and you know if there there's this thought that if you play against a team that handles possession very well that you have to be careful if you're the only way you can kind of um you know withstand the the quality of possession from a team like a, a pep 
Guardiola coach team, the only way to do that is to is to you know try to absorb as much pressure as possible. But if you look at the teams and the coaches that have actually had the most success against Pep Guardiola, they've they've been really two extremes. One has been we're going to bunker down and we're going to have you know two banks of of four or in in some cases two banks of five and we're just going to try to make it impossible for you to get through us and then you've had the the other uh, side of things where you've had a team like a liverpool who will who will create pressure they will they will try to counter press and uh, force you to make mistakes and quickly turn that over and quickly attack um, further up the field and not waiting so deep. And it looked like yesterday Manchester United were, were just in the middle. Um, they didn't really know what to do. There didn't seem to be a plan. And when there doesn't seem to be a plan and there do, and there, and or if there is one and there's no confidence in that plan, then what what you see is what you saw yesterday, which is a team that that didn't have any identity in any identity. They didn't have any sense of flow. There was no sense of calm. A- anytime they got the ball, they were just trying to dump it down the side and hope that Rashford could get on to, to the, the end of that pass and, and try to do a quick counter press. But the, there was no one really there in support either. So when, when we compare what we saw yesterday between those two, two clubs and we look at, you know, our, our own clubs in the, in the U S in terms of even, even to the lowest levels in our youth teams, when we hear these buzzwords, we hear these phrases, it's important to take a step back to pause and watch what happens, especially when there's adversity. If we watch and see, does this team actually possess the ball when the the times are tough, when there is pressure, when there is a, a, a sense of angst because maybe there was a bad touch or there was a bad call or Whatever the case may be, how does that team handle that adversity? Do they continue to try to possess the ball? Do they continue to try to find the open man? And in in watching that, what that does is it's almost like a report card on their training with their coaches. So in that, that training, that's where they're actually developing that ability, that skill as a collective to be able to execute in those moments of pressure and and so when you watch it in a match if it's not going well then that probably means that in training there it's not quite getting accomplished and uh and and executed well enough so that when you get into a match you're not having to overthink you just being able to play and to execute it becomes habit it becomes rote and 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 it's just part of who you are and um and so it's 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 definitely a deeper level of, of preparation and and it's also a deeper level of comfort to be able to play in the way that Man City played yesterday. So look, I, I I'm disappointed. I hoped for a different result, but um you know, you got to tip your hat to Man City, their incredible qua- uh, squad and Pep Guardiola is simply the best. There's no doubt about it. Um he he is amazing to watch work with a team it's it's really really uh incredible um the sponsor for today's show is charity water 
And um, Charity Water delivers clean drinking water to people all over the world. They are changing lives, one life, one village at a time. If you don't know about Charity Water, you can learn more about them at charitywater.org. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. We are joined by Sky Eddie Bruce. Sky, how are you doing today? Great, great. Thanks for having me. So, Sky, tell us a little bit about your your background and and where you know you got involved with the game. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I grew up in the game, so I grew up playing in Northern Virginia. Um, I was born in 1971, so had the benefit of Title IX and um, many opportunities. Um, I grew up, you know, playing in the ODP program on a regional team, on our youth national team. Went on and played collegiately at University of Massachusetts. I transferred. I played my last season at George Mason, and through all of that, I was I was coaching. I'm a goalkeeper. Um, I worked for many, many years for Dr. Matnick and the number one camps and then for Tony DiCicco and Soccer Plus. So have some great coaching mentors along the way. And um, I've been, you know, on and off involved with the game, coaching um, since since my college days, coached collegiately. I'm down in Richmond, Virginia now. I moved here to coach at the University of Richmond. Oh, 20 years ago now and um, stopped coaching collegiately when my daughter was born and have been involved in the youth game since. So um, I actually earlier this week had a Richmond spider on uh, the show, Mickey Turner. And, uh, and a few weeks ago actually had uh, a couple weeks ago had uh, Paul Kennedy, who's a Richmond spider as well. 
um, yeah, on, on the show. Uh, so you're, you're there in Richmond now, um, in, in how has life for a, a female at female athlete changed in now compared to what you were dealing with coming up? Oh, well, I mean, it's so exciting for me. Uh, if you follow me on social media, all you see, I'm constantly pushing out like this record attendance in Spain or, um, last week, the team I played professionally in, in Italy, Tavignaco played um, um, Juve in, in a match that had um, quite a large attendance. So, I mean, from a international scale, the game has changed phenomenally well. Um, obviously, we still have a long way to go um, with our professional leagues here in the States for women. Um, when I graduated college, um, you know, I was a first team All-American. I was MVP of the Final Four. And that was pretty much the last game I played because there was no league in the States and I wasn't actively on the national team. So there was nothing for me. Um, so just to, even though our league has a long way to go, just the fact that there's opportunities for women coming out of college, there's a draft, um, there's growing international opportunities for them to play in clubs in Europe. Um, for me, it's really, really exciting to see that there's, you know, a developing pathway there. So the Europe, whole kind of scene seems to be on a fast track um i was speaking recently with with jack gidney uh, on and off the show who's uh, from england and he was actually back in england and, and talking about what he's seeing there in england in terms of the women's game the investments that are going in to the women's game the infrastructure uh the the pay in terms of finally now getting to a place where these young ladies are growing up with aspirations and the reality of being able to become full-time professional footballers. Um, and, and seeing some of the, the recent uh, things across Europe that you, you mentioned in terms of attendance, when we look at that and, and see that and see that culture that is, is, bleeding in uh, from you know what has been a traditional football culture in Europe and now it's bleeding into to real investments and real uh, tangible um, results in terms of progress with the women's game in Europe how do you think that's going to have an impact on uh, the the player development and the national teams from these countries in Europe Oh, Daniel, I think we're already seeing it have a, a real impact. I mean, um, I'm really anticipating the World Cup this year and to see where we'll lie as a, as a nation. Um, I do feel like it's pretty clear in many regards we are being bypassed, um, whereas in the past we stood out athletically. And, I mean, we hear this conversation happening quite a bit in the women's, when, you're, when you're talking about women's football, but, you know, we've been – we, historically, the U.S. has has been a nation that has separated themselves with athletic mentality and with your athleticism, and um, and that has certainly bypassed us as these nations have, um, on many levels, just like they are with the men, are more advanced on a cognitive level, on an understanding of the game, on a tactics level, and then as the physicality is starting to match um, from you know France or Germany. Um, is starting to match what we've historically had here in the States, then um, 
I, I think we're going to to be coming from from the back seat, trying to get back in the front seat, and um, you know, will be similar battles that the men are having right now. So, in your playing career, after you kind of finished up in in college, you you had a short, brief stint in Italy that. Um, I've read about, I've heard you talk about on, on other shows, uh, briefly. Um, then I, I noticed a few months ago, your daughter had an, uh, an opportunity to have a little bit of an overseas experience. Um, what was that, that conversation like between mother and daughter, both having this European, um, football experience? I mean, I think it's so important for our players, regardless of, the level that they're playing to just it's, it's important for all of us to understand and experience the world stage of football so that we can start to grasp um one how wonderful it is and, and you know how powerful it is because we we don't necessarily always see that so for me sending my daughter callie to spain to experience um two months there with todd bean and his tovo program to me, it was just sending her out into the world to experience the world through the game. I had no like clear understanding or even any expectations about how she would grow um, from a soccer perspective. Um, so really, the initial conversations to answer your questions were all just full of enthusiasm and excitement for her to have this journey um, and to be able to understand the power of the game on a global level. Um, and then if you've heard me speak, she got, she got so much better. Like I was so surprised to see the, the level of improvement, not, not because I didn't have, I guess just because I didn't have those expectations, but it really opened my mind to what we're lacking and what we're just not hitting on from a developmental standpoint with our players um, from the grassroots level on up. Um, because Callie's had good coaching. She's been in good environments. Um, but she's um, really, it was, it was really surprising to see how much she developed as a, as a player in two months. So some of the development that you noticed and that she noticed, what, what would you, how would you describe that? Was it cognitive development? Was it, was it a better understanding of positional play or, or, or positioning in the field? Uh, you know, how, how mm -hmm. would you, how would you describe some of that development? So definitely cognitive. Um, uh, and it's things that that if you ask her about, she'll say, you know, I, I just started checking my shoulders. I became very aware of where everybody was. So then I could be aware of taking a first touch away from pressure. Of course, she's heard that so long, right? I mean, her coaches have said that to her. And so, you know, when I push her on that and say, well, your coaches have been telling you that since you were young, like, why did it all of a sudden click? And um, her response is they just made us really focus on it. It wasn't just a coaching point that was kind of coaching over the flow. It was, it was like the foundation. Um, and we just started from a different place there. Uh, and it all began with cognitive development. Um, I'd say position play maybe, but more than anything, it's just space on the field where the space is and her ability to think ahead, to move off the ball, um, to, uh, another big theme that I've heard from other kids that have been at Tovo that I've in interviewed are, you know, just opening up my body to see the field, how I'm receiving the ball. And again, those are things that we often say in our coaching world, but 
um, it, it's just there's a transition that happened for her where she just started to actually do it. And she's 18. You know, she's she's not 12 years old. Like she's been playing for a long time, and um, still, all of a sudden, the game really opened up to her once just these really sort of foundational, basic principles were be, became ingrained in her. And you know, it made me think like, is it? I don't want to say that simple, but can we just go back and we talk all the time about having real quality coaches in our grassroots environments instead of volunteer coaches. If we just go back and we rethink our structures, is there a potential to really make the make an impact to really um, start to see some real significant evolvement um, in our player development philosophies and our, and actually what's happening from a developmental standpoint. So when we, when we look at that particular point, what, what is going on in the grassroots, in your opinion, in terms of coaching development? It, it, is it overcomplicating? Is it teaching the wrong things? What are you seeing? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, you know, I just got my U.S. Soccer Grassroots Instructor's License, so I'm happy to say I went through that process. It was a long process. It was, you know, eight days of my time and a lot of other um, activities along the way. Um, so I went into it sort of um, with the attitude of, oh my gosh, this is a lot <laughs> to be able to teach a four hour or the D course. But at the end of the day, I'm really happy I went through it. Um, I like the philosophy that's coming out, um, this play practice play. I like the culture that's being trying to be built that U.S. soccer is trying to build through their grassroots initiatives, um, through just the messaging, um, you know, Part of why I think it's had to be such a long process be is because there's a lot of culture building and culture architecting that needs to happen with our grassroots coaches. And so these instructors are primary to that. And so it was really important that the instructors grasped and understood the culture that was trying to come about of lacking an ego and really focusing on, on um, you know, the candidate and what their needs are. So um, I would say that, you know, I'm, I think that there's some possibilities and I'm, I'm, you know, yet again, feeling like a little hopeful and anticipating what might happen as a result of this. But the bottom line, as we know, is that we have a really long way to go in our grassroots environment. Um, we have structures that have just historically not worked and, um, and we have the need for significant leadership change and growth and evolvement. Um, I think we've been focusing oftentimes on the wrong things in our grassroots culture. Um, and, you know, obviously that's a lot of the work that I'm, I'm trying to do these days. So I, I noted, I noted three separate kind of words that you just used in your response. And I want to, I want to get to all three of those uh, structures. What, what structures are you noticing in our, our youth soccer that needs to change? Um, oh, gosh, that's a big question. Um, well, to begin with, I think that as a, as a nation, just from a structure and understanding how, um, who's overseeing what, and the, the debate, the the turf wars that are going on between U.S. youth soccer and U.S. club soccer and AYSO and say soccer and U triple S A, like everyone's trying to get a piece of this. 
And I don't know that that is necessarily the best business model for, for U.S. soccer to be pushing down and to be facilitating, because essentially they are facilitating that. Um, when it comes to um, giving clarity about how, how we develop players, um, I think the other structure that comes to mind is the understanding of a player's pathway. And um, there's not a lot of clarity on what a pathway is. And um, I've said before, it's impossible for a parent in California to talk to a parent in Florida um, and, and use the same words, even have the same terminology so they understand if their child's on a similar pathway or at the same place in their development. And so I think we need to, from a structure standpoint, these are big issues. These are like, this is big thinking. Like, how do we create a structure that is conducive to the realities of the fact that there are a variety of pathways for players, um, some of which are completely non-performance, they're just participatory. And how do we, how do we create um, a structure so that it's clear that a child is moving up along that pathway to you know, the global standard? And um, I think that's possible. It's just going to take some real leadership. And when you have, again, these turf wars happening amongst all these organizations, which is understandable because they're all trying to be a viable business and they're all you know, trying to um, you know, fulfill their mission. And I, and I understand that. But while these turf wars happen, it's going to really be impossible to have that, that pathway structure that I do think that we need. So I, I definitely saw this firsthand when we were going through the 2018 uh, U.S. soccer presidential election, uh, working with Eric Winalda in, in, in the campaign and just kind of seeing and meeting all of these different entities and, uh, and organizations. One of the things that I, I kind of uh, came out of all of that with, and it's interesting to hear you bring that up when you talk about structures and turf wars, I, one of the things that I don't understand about U.S. soccer is why why does U.S. soccer um, farm out its its sanctioning responsibility for players in terms of, uh, I guess the best way to think of it is, why isn't U.S. soccer just creating the player registration card uh, and player ID card? Why, why do you have, you know, what seems like 50 different places to go? Um, you know, why isn't there just one card and one registration thing? And then, you know, if you decide as a club, Hey, I want to go play in, in a U.S. club soccer sanctioned league or tournament or whatever, then, you know, that's one thing, but it seems to me like, uh, the Federation has farmed out that responsibility and, um, in doing so has abdicated, uh, what should be a place where it should bring some sanity and clarity uh, and instead has created some chaos. I, and I see that uh, and have seen that uh, personally just in, in, in where we are and, and with our own kids um, and even kids that I've coached trying to figure out like where do they go, uh, that there's um, – no development academy easily accessible to kids. You know, the, the, I think the closest one is like maybe five hours away. And so mm -hmm. you, you know, you talk about pathways and, and that structure, you know, and, and you see this giant 
maze of options and not all you know not all options lead to the to the end place that you want to go some of them you end up down an alley and you're looking back going well how did i end mm-hmm. up here and what, what was this um and, and so I, I've actually found it easier to just, you know, my, my oldest son who, who, uh, will be 14 next month. I I've found it easier to just, you know, literally take him out of the country and go overseas and train with clubs. I've taken him, uh, from coast to coast, uh, in the U S uh, for training opportunities uh, as well. Um, and, and it's crazy that I have to, you know, literally get on an airplane and fly, you know, three, four, five, six, eight hours uh, to to get proper opportunities uh, living in in the U.S. But uh, that's part of this structure problem. One of the other uh, things that you highlighted uh, is leadership. What changes with leadership, uh, or what improvements with leadership, do you think that we need to see here in uh, in American soccer? Well, I think that we all were full of anticipation during the presidential election because for those of us that are passionate about the game and are feeling disconnected and are feeling like we want to believe in U.S. soccer, we want to, you know, go all in and, and realize the wonderful potential that we have. For those of us who have felt disenfranchised, I think that election was a glimpse and a glimmer of potential and hope for us. Um, and unfortunately, we haven't seen that leadership change. So I think that, um, you know, if we're talking about like large scale leadership and, and the involvement of leadership, I mean, we're talking about culture. And when I talk about leadership, what I'm really trying to talk about or what I'm, what I'm I think that the underlying theme of that is we need leadership change so that our culture will evolve and so that we will create um, and and have a an organizational structure and body that we can believe in. So I think we need systemic leadership change. Um, I think that we need, and, and we feel this all the time, it's like we're beating our head against the wall, seeing these inadequacies and deficiencies and not really having a, a, any clarity that somebody is hearing us. And so um, I think that that's probably the best way to say the leadership change we need at a high level is that we need to feel heard. We need to feel lead, have leaders in place that we feel are acknowledging and understand what we're going through, whether that be the, the top level players, uh, whether that be the pro leagues or whether that be the most grassroots. Um, the most grassroots parent and player. Um, so we need, um, I think we need to rethink our, our board structure and our board. And I think that um, we need to be evaluating um, some, and, 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 and again, we need to have, it, it, I'm feeling like even right now talking to you, Daniel, it's like, again, I feel like I'm beating my head against the wall because we all know what we need and what we want. So the approach that I've taken is let's start somewhere. Like what can I control? And so the leadership change that I'm trying to facilitate is within our club structures in the United States. So if we can start having different leadership in our grassroots player development process that has different values and we're changing the culture in our youth game, then that leadership 
um, then that leadership change and involvement and growth will um, really facilitate a powerful movement at our base so that hopefully we can see the change that we all want at the top. So let's, let's go there um, because I, I, that is a perfect segue into kind of where I wanted to go anyway, which is, mm-hmm. you know, what can we do wherever we are? So, you know, there are people like uh, Chris Kessel in West Virginia who works in the grassroots and has, you know, worked uh, his way into the West Virginia State uh, Soccer Association. And he's uh, he and I have actually been working together on a, this letter campaign and, and getting clubs from all over the country, more than 300 clubs now who have signed on to a letter asking for U.S. soccer to begin this this conversation about equal access and opportunity through promotion and relegation to every club in America. Um, and, and we've seen that movement grow, but that movement came and this, this whole project came because people like Chris have been working in the trenches in their local backyard for years and earned credibility was, was changing culture locally where he was and your organization, um, Soccer Parenting uh, Association, SoccerParenting.com, uh, uh, has been working to try to do this, have the same effect uh, around the country with clubs, uh, with with parents, etc. Tell us a little bit more about that project. Sure. I mean, I founded Soccer Parenting because I want to improve the youth soccer experience for all players, parents and coaches. And um, the mission of the organization is to inspire players by empowering parents. And, you know, the concept of empowering parents is a scary one for us coaches because the whole parent coach relationship is one that is, hasn't been adequately defined. And um, so as we realize that giving parents some education and empowering them and helping them see what a great environment looks like, giving parents information about what, you know, um, training compensation and solidarity even is, or giving them information about promotion and relegation so that they can develop opinions and thoughts around that. You know, the more, the more education we provide our parents, the, the faster um, our game will evolve and grow and, um, and be improved. So that's essentially what I'm doing. I'm, I'm working to develop collaborative relationships with clubs across the country um, that will then um, provide an education platform. The Soccer Parent Resource Center um, is a website that I created that clubs are providing and state associations and leagues are providing access to all the parents in their organization. And so the idea is that as we engage and connect with and educate and empower parents, that um, then that will facilitate the growth and change, whether that be leadership or structure, um, change that that we're hoping that that we'll have some power here from the from the base. So, parents are often from from if you're looking at it from an insider perspective inside of youth soccer, maybe you are a coach, you're an admin, uh, you're a registrar, what have you. Uh, parents are often viewed as adversarial. Uh, they're a problem. They're a nuisance. Um, unfortunately that's kind of been a stigma or a little bit of the culture within, within the American youth soccer space. What, what specifically, uh, do you 
want to see uh, improve with parents and their education? Is it their understanding of the game? Is it their understanding of their role as a soccer mom, soccer dad? What are you trying to kind of impart to these parents um, in terms of through through your um, resources? Yeah. So I think what I have become acutely aware of in my time in, with soccer parenting and as I dive into these issues is that we have a couple of, of large-scale issues that have just permeated our entire soccer culture. Um, one of those, to give an example, would be the lack of trust. So we don't trust U.S. soccer. U.S. You know, the, the clubs oftentimes don't trust the organizing bodies or the leagues, and there's a lot of divisiveness between parents and coaches. Like This lack of trust just has infiltrated everything that we do. So on the most, on the most foundational level, what I'm truly attempting to do is to establish trust between coaches and parents. And so as we're doing that, and I believe that that will be a change agent to a more, uh, an experience where players will end up feeling inspired by the game, regardless of their athletic potential, we will develop a, a large group of players and parents who feel inspired by the game and that will grow the game. Um, so ultimate in, in the most foundational level, that's what I'm working to do. So that involves a lot of, um, talking and educating coaches about things like emotional intelligence and establishing trust and um, communicative intelligence and um, leading from the out, you know, outward leadership. Those are all types of things that I'm working with clubs and, and coaches with. And then from a parent perspective, yes, helping them understand their role. And the, the, you know, the other things that like I see all the time in our youth game is this sort of um, our, our desire for connection. I said that earlier, like, I want to believe in U.S. soccer. I want to feel connected to this organization. I want to say that, yes, this is, this is uh, that I trust them. And, you know, parents want to feel that about their children's youth sporting experience as well. And so that's also part of the work that I'm doing is, um, is trying to, um, help organizations um, and help parents see what their role is and help coaches realize and kind of flip the script on what they've been taught and what they've thought and what our, our youth culture has often been about of, of keeping distance between parents and coaches and really help coaches and organizations see the benefit of engaging parents and help parents realize that there's a place. And as we can establish those connections, whether they be parents feeling a stronger connection to the club and it being a part of their family or whether it be, um, you know, they're seeing, be, being joyful because they're seeing their child feel inspired by the game and learn those life lessons that we're seeking for them. You know, then um, those are, those are probably the two key areas that I'm trying to find is, is establishing a sense of belonging and connectedness in our youth game and establishing better trust between coach clubs and um, parents. I had a, I had a conversation recently with a club um, and that conversation was centered around how you treat parents in a uh, practical way. So one of their policies was um, that we want you to, to bring your, your kids and we want you to basically drop them off 
at the field, treat the field as the classroom. You know, you wouldn't go sit in your kid's classroom during the school day. So don't come out here and sit right, right around the field with, with the classroom, basically give our coaches space to be like their teacher in school and, you know, basically come back at the end of practice or in this case, the end of the school day and pick them up and go on your way. And, and so when I was kind of having this conversation with them, I, I asked them, I said, well, okay, I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, if you're going to treat the, the field as a classroom and the, the coach is the teacher and the whole drop off thing, um, do you also understand that at the same time you are functionally practically telling the parents that you don't want them to be a part of your club? And they stopped for a minute and they were like, well, I haven't really thought of it that way. We were just trying to, and I was like, I, I, I understand what you're trying to do in terms of, you know, the parent who comes to practice or to a game and, and, and they're acting more like the coach than the coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I understand where you're going with that. However, when you want to sell tickets for your first team or you want to get your parents involved in, you know, volunteerism, being active in the club, being, you know, uh, uh, supporting the club, maybe helping bring in sponsorships, etc. When you're constantly giving them the stiff arm and just saying, stay away, stay away, stay away. Um, and, and then you want to turn around and kind of flip the switch later and say, Hey, get involved, get involved, get involved. you, you, you've already kind of defeated yourself. And so I think what you're doing is really, really important in that it is bridging the gap between kind of what's been traditionally in American soccer, this, this view of let us handle it. We're the experts. And, you know, you just kind of sit over there and, and because we don't really know what to do with you, we would rather you just stay away. And, and, and- yeah, go ahead. And the, I think one of the historical problems that we've had is that we've said, you stay over there, we're the experts, but we haven't been. We haven't <laughs> provided a really good quality enough environment oftentimes. And so that's why there's these like question marks that we have um, and this lack of trust because there's been coaches that are saying that and these walls have gone up, but our kids aren't inspired and they're not thriving and they're not living up to their potential and they're not learning the life lessons they're supposed to learn. And the environment isn't conducive to player development. And yet we're saying you don't have a voice. And I just have to stop and say, you know, that's how we deal with us soccer. That's an example of how this has just permeated our culture. We're doing at the club level, what we feel us soccer is doing to us. And, and that's where we have to stop. And if we can stop that at our club level, and if we can stop being arbitrary, we can stop leading with an ego, and instead we can try to develop better communication and we can develop better connection. And, hey, I don't think parents should be at practices at, a, at, at levels. I, I've written articles about that. But to be arbitrary about that and not listen and not have a place for parents and, not to, and for them not to feel like they belong isn't the answer either. So... Um, you know, I, I think it's important that we can see that parallel and between what we're doing at the club level and what, you know, many of us feel is happening at a higher level. You've been to, to Europe and you, and your daughter recently went to Europe. Uh, I've been to Europe uh, several times as well. We, we will be back uh, again this summer for, for three weeks and, and doing 
uh, soccer training and, and my son's playing in an international tournament over there. Um, the, the club culture that you experience in, in Europe is to me, what is missing here in America in, 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 it even addresses a lot of the things that we're talking about with, with parents, these, um, you know, there's a place for them. Their kids may be going out and training and they're with their coaches. Um, I, I remember last year, it's about a year ago, last May, um, my son and I were in Denmark um, and he was training there with, with some pro clubs for a week. And while we were there, one of the, one of the days, the moms uh, were right at the field the 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 danish moms were right at the field and what had happened is the club had actually allowed them because we were there to come out and watch you know these american kids train with their kids and and see the the training session whatever and so i started talking to them and you know just trying to kind of you know, figure out, you know, what their experience is and learn more about, you know, the Danish uh, football culture and kind of what, what they um, experience as parents with their own kids, et cetera. And, 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 and one of the moms was like, this is the first practice I've ever watched. Uh, They, 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 (laughs) they don't let us out here, but, but she wasn't really complaining as much as she was saying that it was kind of, it was more of a matter of fact, like this is just how we do what we do. Um, but she never felt like she was pushed aside because the club had a clubhouse and in a place where other parents were naturally already congregating anyway with a big patio and then a, a kitchen. They had a, you know, a full dining area. And so these parents, it was basically, you know, an hour, hour and a half of, of kind of, you know, social after work, uh, parents are connecting there while the kids are out training with their coaches. And so I, I feel like a lot of this authentic club culture that we see in Europe and we see in, in, in South America, if we could get to that place locally with our clubs where they start to really understand the business they're in, the, the organizational function that they should be performing, I think a lot of these issues would start to kind of correct themselves in terms of how parents and clubs and parents interact with one another. Yeah. It sounds like what you're saying is, is what is a soccer club? Like, do we even have we adequately defined what the role is of a club in our society or, and I think there's some nuances of our culture or society parenting in America versus parenting in Denmark, you know, that, we need to acknowledge, but that's not to say that it, it has to be like it's been for us. <laughs> you know, that's not to say that there can't be some, some real change. And I think that what I also find as I travel the country and work with clubs and talk to parents all over the country is that the clubs that are providing a good environment that are establishing trust with the parents, whether that, you know, and that doesn't have to be, that doesn't have to be extremely significant, but it's just the door is open to parents. For those parents that feel like the door is open to them, then um, a lot of a lot of the issues that we see in other clubs are are, van, are gone. So um, I I think that this issue might be a little bit easier to solve from like a programming standpoint than we think. But again, this comes down to leadership. Do we have the quality of leaders that we need, whether that be directors of coaching or age level directors at clubs or coaches um, that that have the ability to 
communicate and connect and and to I think the the big thing that comes in is that have the self-trust that are confident in themselves so that therefore they can um, establish an environment that is similar to what you know you felt in Denmark that the parents just trusted that they, that the kids were in a good place and um, you know I, I think that, that that possibility is right around the corner for us. And we're seeing clubs doing that. We're seeing great changes in clubs that, um, you know, are starting to rethink the coach-parent relationship uh, as the foundation of that change. So as we um, kind of come to a close here, what, I, I want to ask you if there was one thing, if you if you were queen of U.S. soccer for a day, and there was one thing that you could do uh, as queen, what would you do to change, improve, whatever with, uh, with American soccer? You know, I'm, I'm, that, that question or the answer can kind of go in two directions. Does, one, does it need to be like structural change? Does it need to be, you know, um, you know, like board level, higher level type stuff? But I think that, I think that um, I think that it, the collaboration and establishing, I mean, in one day you can't change, you know, can't create this concept of collaboration. Um, but that would be where I feel like um, setting a, I, if I had it one day, I would set standards and put standards in place that we have to adhere to that really make sure that, all players, all parents, all people that are connected to the game feel that have a, a love and a passion for the game feel a connection. And so that is the only way that we're going to really live up to our potential. I didn't answer your question adequately. I wish you had given me a day ahead of time for that one. I could have come up with a better answer. But, um, you know, again, I think that it's important for me that I just keep talking about trust and establishing trust and those relationships. Um, and connection are probably the two things that come to mind. Well, that that's the point is is, <laughs> is to put uh, to put you on the spot. I I love to hear I love to hear that in, in that moment, you know where where you go and 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 kind of where you. Uh, I yeah. I think that that the, that the thing that probably you know if anyone's put on the spot with that question, your mind just kind of explodes because. We don't have, we know we haven't felt like we have a voice. And um, that to me is, you know, is something that we all need to realize too, is that we're asking for these change, this change to happen. And these, this is, this is, we are turning a huge ship here and we do need to celebrate and acknowledge the one change that has happened. I mean, you're making a difference to the work you're doing. Chris is making a difference. All the people that are, you know, out on social media and are starting to change the narrative, we're, we're all, we are making a difference. Even seeing the MLS teams support the training conversation and solidarity payments all of a sudden, that's a whole other discussion I know you've discussed already, but, you know, that's, that's exciting change. So, um, you know, I, I am really, really hopeful as, as, much as it does feel like, again, I've said a few times, beating your head against the wall, I am very hopeful and full of anticipation at what U.S. soccer is going to look like 10, 20 years from now um, and, and the future of the sport in the United States as we can start living up to our global potential. 
Well, and and that's such a good land, <clears throat> excuse me, landing spot because we have massive potential. I think we can be the greatest soccer country on earth if we ever set our minds to it, just like we were the first country to put a man on the moon and in the inspiring words of JFK that we would do it by the end of that decade. Um, if, if we could figure out how to land a spaceship on the moon in less than 10 years with that technology, I have no doubt that as Americans, if we put our minds to it and we set our hearts to it, we can become the greatest soccer country on earth in less than 10 years as well, if that becomes our goal. And uh, so, I, look, I am, I am so thankful that you are doing the work that you're doing and uh and and really happy that you you came on the show today um it's it's important that voices like yours people like chris as well continue to do that work keep beating the drum keep reaching out keep trying to make the change that you want to see um, because that's the only way we're going to get the change that we need so thanks again for coming on the show we look forward to having you back on very very soon yeah you bet thanks so much take care that was Sky Eddie Bruce. She um, is doing is doing great stuff with uh, um, soccer parenting and and just a, a lot of other things. If, if you don't um, if you don't follow her on Twitter, you should uh, you should do so uh, at Sky Eddie Bruce. That's S K Y E E D D Y B R U C E. Sky Eddie Bruce. Um, she's a great follow and, uh, and, and great to interact with and um, has great insight into the game. So definitely take a look at, at that, connect with her and connect with her work. Uh, she's, she's changing culture one club at a time. Thanks for joining the show today. We look forward to being back tomorrow and uh, wrapping up the week with Don Harmon, who is uh, working inside and and part of a new project called the Mountain Premier League. So uh, look forward to having Don on tomorrow uh, and look forward to you checking that out. As always, thanks for joining the show. We'll see you tomorrow. Just a single to remind you that there's more to see I'm just a part